This is the Progression Health Podcast, and I'm here with researcher Timo Vivalhov. Timo, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you very much, uh, Ross, for the invitation to your podcast. So as you rightly said, my name is Timo Wiebelhofer. I'm a professor at um, IST, University of Applied Science in Germany, Düsseldorf. I'm there the head of a master's degree program called uh, Training in Exercise Science and Sports Nutrition. And um, yeah, I'm happy to be here and uh, be invited by you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So uh, you said that you're, you would call yourself a strength conditioning coach. What are some of the projects you're currently working on? And um, what what is the work that you currently do? So um, because of the um, actual pandemic situation we have worldwide, um, also we have some uh, um, COVID projects going on, um, which is, for example, about um, the influence of uh, an active lifestyle on uh, long COVID syndrome, for example. So we have some really interesting um, topics um, on this, but... Yeah, my main research topic in the last years was and still is uh, the topic of recovery management. So we're doing or I'm doing a lot of research on uh, the youth um, and the effectiveness of recovery strategies. And also on the second topic, which is um, related to recovery management, namely uh, monitoring of fatigue and recovery in sports. Um, um, so these are right now my main research areas, apart from um, some other small projects, which are um, more or less really applied. Um, to the field of training and exercise science. Very good. And if somebody is listening and they don't focus on their recovery right now, let's say they're like, I just need to focus on the exercise. You know, that's all that matters. Recovery, that'll take care of itself. Why should somebody listening consider recovery um, for general health and then also for, let's say, performance if they have a certain training goal they're trying to improve? So first of all, I have to state that... um, we mainly focus on elite sports um, when we did the research in the last years on recovery and recovery management because of of course i mean it's obvious that um, uh, elite athletes um, not only train hard but recovery is like an important part of uh, their training regimes and training plans because they have a huge training load a huge competition load and they have critical critically um, plan their um, also recovery periods. So if you compare elite athletes, for example, with recreational athletes, uh, the training becomes more important because, uh, of course, the overall training time is less. And recreational athletes, for example, let's say they train three or four times a week, there's still enough time to recovery so they don't have to focus that much on, on the recovery period. But as you rightly said, so there's also a health aspect. So, of course, we not only have the sport context, but also the working context, for example, and many people out there working really, really hard and maybe should also emphasize their recovery and uh, should look on their recovery needs. And that starts with uh, proper sleep, for example, proper nutrition to help to recover better and to feel better during everyday uh, or daily life uh, demands, like, of course, working demands. So have you, you've heard of DOMS, I'm sure, you know, uh, yeah. del- delayed yeah, soreness. I think a lot of people, non-elite exercisers, we'll call them, for muscle soreness. I think this is like a good thing. So basically what you're saying is that if they get the recovery taken care of, their mood, their their functioning will be better because they will have less soreness. Is that too much of a jump or would that be possible? I mean, um, muscle soreness is just one part of the, the fatigue picture, exercise. And fatigue is really complex, of course, like everything, um, especially if you take a closer look into the physiology of fatigue. So, of course, first of first of all, mus- muscle soreness is not a bad thing. So it's just 
some sort of response to training and exercise, uh, which shows that you trained hard. And that is something going on in your body, which then finally probably leads to adaptation to training. So we have to maybe distinguish between a period where, for example, I'm, I train hard to adapt to increase my performance. And in this period, let's say in a, in a, in a team or racket sports, I'm in a preseason and um, I, I prepare for the competition period and train really hard. Then I would say muscle soreness is not a bad thing. It's part of the training progress. Um, but on the other hand, if you, for example, in a competition period um, where you um, had a competition and where you have to focus on recovering um, fast to be um, in, a, in a state of readiness because next competition is only a couple of days um, um, away, then, of course, it is important to recover fast and maybe also to get rid of the muscle soreness, which may be, um, of course, influence in some way, not only your mood, but also your performance. Um, also your well-being and so on. So, um, of course, in these different kind of scenarios, um, um, it's recovery. The Progression Health Podcast has teamed up with TRX. So TRX is a bodyweight training piece of equipment that you can hook up anywhere, anytime. And uh, I highly recommend it. I use it in every session with my clients. I use it to warm up and also for stretching. Uh, but if you are traveling, which is where I recommend everyone use it, you know, it's hard to get to a gym. Uh, it's hard to find the time. But you could literally work out from your hotel room with the TRX um, and the door attachment that it has where it doesn't damage the door, but it gives you an effective workout. I also like to add in other things like uh, glute bands and uh, resistance bands. Um, but once you have the TRX, then you can figure all that out. So get yourself 50% off on the TRX home workout equipment with the code PROGRESSIONHEALTHTRX and boost your workout effectiveness and consistency. Progression Health Podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online therapy service which will help you to more effectively manage your mental health. Mental health is very important and it's something that all of us are realizing now, especially after the pandemic. During the pandemic, for me especially, it was very challenging and I, I reached out to BetterHelp. I uh, tried out a few of their licensed therapists and settled on one for the majority of the pandemic and I found uh, the help that I received invaluable. And the great thing also is that you can speak to your therapist outside of sessions. Um, if it's not working out, you can switch. Very affordable. It's really easy to use also. Um, and if someone hasn't tried therapy before, but you're kind of, you know, you're curious, I would highly recommend BetterHelp. So what we've done is uh, we've got a sign up link I'll attach in the show notes. And basically you can get a discount to get started and uh, start improving your mental health today. So BetterHelp for better mental health. Well, recovery strategies may help to overcome muscle soreness in a good way. But uh, to, to finish it, I mean, overall, muscle soreness is not a bad thing. And also elite athletes, even though they train every day, will experience muscle soreness. Um, so everyone will experience it. And it's just a reaction of the or response of the body. And it's, it shows that you worked hard and you will probably adapt. Um, so the question is, um, do you accept? Do you accept it? And maybe you work uh, or you wait, wait uh, two or, or three days before you st start your next training session. Or you know, okay, in one day I have my next competition and I have to recover now really fast. And then I have to think about what, what should I do to now recover fast and be in a state of readiness uh, in like, let's say, 24 or 48 hours when the next competition um, um, is, is going to start. Interesting. So what I thought previously was that if you had muscle soreness, it was an indication you did, you did too much. You, you trained past your ability to recover and that's why you're feeling soreness in the days preceding your workout. So you're saying soreness isn't a bad thing and it's how you be accepted or not. So, so soreness or my view of soreness, it sounds like it's kind of wrong or I should adapt it. What do you think? Um, so it's not, first of all, it's not a bad thing. I mean, um, it's, it's a natural response to, um, to training 
especially if you train hard. Not every exercise um, or a sport or discipline will lead to muscle soreness. So for example, if you go swimming, you will probably uh, not experience much muscle soreness. But for example, if you do heavy strength training, you will probably have a lot of muscle soreness. Um, so it's a natural thing and um, we have to accept it. Um, and it is, a, it is something not only, as I said, elite athletes experience, um, it is also um, something recreational athlete experience or, or um, um, someone who is just doing, um, I try to find the right word, but um, yeah, um, someone who's doing something which is not used to do or she. So um, um, if someone is, is doing um, strength training for the fir very first time, and even though it's not a heavy strength training session, he or she will still probably experience muscle soreness. So um, yeah, overall it's 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 a natural thing. So um, it's it's uh, it's part of a training process. So we have to live with it, and uh, we can always see it as a as a good thing because when we have muscle soreness, we now our body is adapting in some some way. So so there's some physiological processes going on that uh, will help me to. Um, become stronger, for example, or better, um, or um, or faster, or whatsoever. And um, it's only the question: Do I need a fast release of muscle soreness, relief of muscle soreness? Do I have to, um, or do I have to try to to decrease muscle soreness as fast as possible? Because I know next next morning there's the next training session or the next competition, or can I easily live with it and say, okay, I trained hard now, now. I have two days off and then I have my next training sessions in a week. So that's, that's the question. Yeah. So it's not black and white. It's very um, almost like a gray situation or nuance. So I feel as though you would need a specific athlete and the, the time frame to decide what to do. So I guess if you were training towards a performance goal, like you wanted to get stronger, for example, you're trying to increase like your deadlift or your sprint time and you had no muscle soreness, but you're training, you know, you think you're training hard. Would that be a bad thing? And then if you're, you're doing the same goal and this, the soreness is affecting your quality of life and your mood, would that be a bad thing? So I guess when do you know that the soreness is, we'll say, normal and when is it kind of like abnormal? I mean, usually like the, the muscle soreness we are talking about um, is usually never abnormal. So um if if you have soreness which feels abnormal, then you're probably some sort of injured, um, or you have some sort of overuse or something like this, um, which is more uh, like orthopedic problem. But if you have the the muscle soreness that is common after intensive training or unaccustomed, or I'm not I don't know if that is the right word, but after like um, exercises that are not used to, then it's absolutely normal. And the only question is always the scenario. Um, so if you are in a just, let's say, just in a period where you train, for example, as I said, in the preseason, where you can easily also skip a training session because you're feeling too fatigued, um, then you don't have to worry about that the muscle soreness is really hard. But if you are in an in-season, for example, and where you know, okay, I have to compete in two days again, and I, I'm still feeling really sore, then I have to improve my recovery or have to plan the recovery phases so that I have some sort of um, uh, some sort of speeding the recovery you know from from muscle soreness so um, these are the different scenarios so I was I would always say if I if I train and uh, if I'm for example in a pre pre-season for example um, I can easily live with the muscle soreness because I can quite flexible play around with my training plan 
And I know my main goal is to increase performance and uh, try to adapt to training. So in this scenario, muscle soreness is a good thing because I know uh, training um, stimulus was good um, and, um, and then I can adapt. And But if I'm in an in a in-season, for example, where now I have to compete in a couple of days again, then um, I have to yeah, critically discuss with my coach, for example, or with myself, what can I do uh, now um, to decrease muscle soreness and to be ready for the next for the next competition because the competition will not wait. A yeah, very good point. That's, my coach said that as well to me. He was like, you better keep training uh, because on the competition day, you can't turn up and decide, oh, I'm going back to bed. I don't want to train or I don't want to work out, you know, so, uh, interesting point. So it feels as though your your ability to train or perform is only as good as your program uh, over the long term, you know, because things will come up, you know, time will change or whatever. But uh, if your program was poorly planned initially, you're more likely to run into challenges. Whereas if it was better laid out initially or you have a, you have a better understanding of how to monitor and uh, manage fatigue and training, you can make more of the program is that kind of the solution basically to manage fatigue or one solution it is definitely one solution i mean recovery management what we are talking about here is a part of of training planning um of of program designing and like training planning is um i would say the most complex task for coaches because you have to put everything together uh, you have to um, plan different kind of training cycles from the whole year to the single training session um, you have to define um, exercises, exercise order, and so on. And if you try to um, also make these training plans some sort of evidence-based, it's becoming really, really complex. Um, and I would say like the whole training planning is, um, it is not possible to, to base the whole training plan purely on evidence because it's too complex. Uh, but in some parts, um, you can definitely... Um, try to put uh, evidence into your training plan and recovery management is always part of this training plan because of course mainly you plan the training sessions but especially in elite sports you also plan the recovery parts between training sessions um, also during a training session or between competitions so um, yeah training planning is the whole picture and recovery management is part of this picture and of course we try to make it as evidence-based as possible but it's not possible to base everything in the training plan and also in the recovery plan purely on evidence because it's too complex, as I said. But um, yeah, this will be um, the, the overall picture. Right, yeah, so like a little bit of educated guessing or experience comes in as well, or even the athlete's kind of feedback as well will be important. So Definitely. So you mentioned uh, long COVID and exercise. That's like very relevant right now. Would you just talk a little bit about that project or anything that you've, uh, you've learned about that? and maybe how exercise benefits people's like overall well-being or just their kind of resiliency we are at the very beginning of this project and um, we have to distinguish there are um, uh, people who are suffering really um, hard on long COVID syndrome who have uh, serious issues and who are not able to participate in any physical activity at all that is problematic of course um, so this is not part of the project we are doing right now so we are working with the people who have light long COVID syndromes who are still able to um, participate in physical activity and regular physical activity. And we look on how uh, these people may benefit from regular physical activity um, in regard or with regard to their long um, COVID syndrome or long COVID symptoms. So um, 
because we are at the very beginning of the project, I unfortunately can't give any results of this project, but I know there are a lot of projects going on right now. I mean, it's, um, it's naturally because it's just a, it's, it's, it's just a massive topic and, and everyone is interested in that because it's a worldwide pandemic and, um, Many, many people are, of course, uh, in some sort of influenced by that. And um, yeah, that's, that's mainly the part of that. And I know there are a lot, lot of really, really good research groups uh, working on that um, as well. And as you said, I mean, our theory is, as with many things, like that is also my personal opinion, my personal experience, but it's also evidence-based. I mean, we know sports and active living is like some sort of the best medication for a lot of things. For a lot of issues, for a lot of health issues, um, and in both perspectives, not only uh, the perspective of treatment, but also the perspective of prevention of, to prevent a lot of um, of of um, um, like uh, um, illnesses. I, I don't know if the word is right, um, but yeah, but but illnesses. So uh, our theory is that at least people who have light symptoms who are still able to to participate in in physical activity maybe can benefit from it. Um, we try to coach them very good. Of course, there are a lot of people have also psychological issues because they're not uh, feeling really good. We don't have that much knowledge on what uh, COVID or long COVID is doing with the people. So a lot of people are frightened. They're not, they don't really know what can I do, what I'm able to do um, um, without hurting myself. So we try to support them and to help them to um, um, guide them back to a normal and uh, physical active life and just look on um, how it helped them with uh, coping with their long COVID, uh, long COVID symptoms. That's pretty much um, um, where we are uh, right now. Very good. It'll be interesting to see the results of that and uh, hopefully uh, exercise continues to be promising even for people with uh, your research focuses on three different areas, Timo. So the first one, uh, the general aspects of fatigue. So one of your studies under this area was the age and sex related differences in recovery from uh, high intensity and endurance exercise. So basically, how do men and women of different ages differ um, from high intensity activity? So maybe something like five kilometers, maybe to like, would it be like marathon running? Would that be the areas? Like, um, I, I mean, yeah, this was one project where we looked on the fatigue um, or recovery or fatigue and recovery patterns um, with regard to age and also sex and also performance levels in high intensity exercises. So not only 5k runs, but also like, for example, interval running. So high intensity interval training as, as another example of, of high intensity training was also part of that um, um, project. Yeah. Very good. And what were like the main findings? Because um, what I know already is, Women tend to recover faster than men, I think. Um, and I even just depends. Kind of, yeah, depends. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> everything depends. Um, in resistance training, in my sessions, I feel like my female clients recover faster. But I'm sure there's going to be, you know, everyone is an individual, so that's not going to be the case for uh, everybody across the board. But what were the main findings that you found in this study? So maybe first of all, I would maybe give a sh quick uh, story why we did it. I mean, it's it's really interesting. Um, in, in sport practice, we see like at the highest level, for example, um, Cristiano Ronaldo, a soccer player, really famous soccer player, who's um, I think 35 or 36. So already pretty old for an elite athlete, still, still participating in his sport at the highest level and competing against other athletes who are 20, 19 years old, for example. And the interesting topic is, of course, um, do they recover differently, a 20-year elite athlete compared to a 35-year-old um, elite athlete? 
But it's also interesting to, for example, a 50 or 70 year old master athlete um, um, or physical active person uh, recover in a different way than younger athletes or children. So are there different recovery patterns? Because ultimately that would lead to different um, recommendations when it comes to the use of recovery strategies, for example. And on the other end, also, of course, is sex, for example, an influencing factor um, on, on recovery patterns? Do women recover um, in a different way than, um, than male athletes, which is also really interesting? Um, so that, that was the, the, the main aspects because, of course, I mean, we already know a lot of um, on the physiology of, of fatigue and recovery through exercise, but um, there are far less um, studies on, on comparing different fatigue and recovery patterns um, with regard to um, specific uh, samples, like you know, like um, older athletes or younger athletes, kids um, versus master athletes, for example. So that is that is the story behind that. And first of all, I have to say we still don't know much. <laughs> um, so there's still a, a really um, huge gap um, of um, of knowledge on that uh, topic. And um, before we get into that uh, too much, we first of all have to distinguish between actually the fatigue patterns. So we always talk about fatigue, but uh, maybe uh, to to clear that up a little bit, um, we have different sorts of um, fatigue and also recovery needs. So on a, we, we can, for example, structure it from a more like from a time perspective. So when we are doing a training session, we will experience fatigue during the training session. Um, that's always the case. And everyone knows that who's uh, doing um, exercises on a regular basis. And um, so if we start, for example, in a really intense, um, high intensity interval training where we run intervals, we will experience fatigue during the different kind of intervals. And we've, at the end of the training sessions before the last interval, we don't feel very fresh and the performance will decrease in the time course of the training session. So this is, um, we would call it like short-term fatigue. And then we have more the mid and long-term fatigue, which, um, which will show up after the training session um, in the hours and days after the training session. And we have to distinguish a little bit between these, um, these sorts of sorts of fatigue. So the, the main finding was that children, um, adults, and master athletes um, um, have different uh, fatigue patterns. Um, so, for example, when we talk about these um, acute in-training fatigue, children fatigue uh, uh, children tend to recover um, much faster than adult adults and also um, older um, athletes. Um, so, uh, we can treat children quite hard during training, and they will still recover fast during, for example, an interval session. Um, and uh, um, there are not pretty much sex differences in this acute fatigue. But it's also hard to say um, if there are really differences because um, it's always hard to compare. What do we compare? Like, do we compare uh, males and females on the same performance level, like on a same absolute performance level? That wouldn't be sound right. Or on the same like relative performance level, maybe then there's not a real possibility to make a clear comparison. So it's maybe still limited. So that's the huge issue when we compare the different recovery patterns. So the easiest, uh, um, um, at least, is to say that young athletes recover faster during a training session than older athletes. Um, and when it comes to a more mid and long-term fatigue, we see that um, for example, female athletes tend to 
recover slower when it comes to, for example, respiratory recovery. Um, they need more time to um, reach their um, reach reach their resting heart rate, for example, while male recover a little bit faster there. On the other hand, um, the mid and long term fatigue is mainly related to muscle uh, damage, which ultimately uh, results in muscle soreness. And um, relate in relation to the muscle damage, it's the other way around. So male athletes um, usually tend to experience more muscle damage and also more muscle soreness than female athletes. This has different kind of reasons. First of all, um, male athletes usually reach a higher absolute uh, intensity, training intensity, because of higher muscle mass, for example, also because of uh, um, a different hormonal stimulus, for example. So males tend to um, work a little bit harder. It's not a criticism. It's just like biology. So because of a hormonal status, they tend to uh, work more intense than, than females. Um, so usually uh, males for, um, in this scenario um, tend to uh, um, develop more muscle damage and um, therefore need more recovery time to recover from muscle damage. And uh, also children, for example, um, children usually don't experience uh, that much muscle damage compared to adult athletes. So there's also a difference. Um, so these were, are just some of the some of the findings, which are not really trustful, I would say. So there's still a gap, as I said, of, of knowledge. So it's that's just the first direction. But which, which is pretty much clear, is, uh, and uh, this is maybe the strongest message from all these projects we did on that, that well-trained athletes are recovering better than um, um, non-trained um, um, or non-active people. Um, so... Obviously, it's some sort of also adaptation to training a lot. Um, so you are able to, to recover faster during training, but also after training, which doesn't mean that uh, now elite athletes don't have to talk about recovery anymore. The problem is they also train more. Um, so they still need to focus on recovery, um, but they are also able to recover faster um, than an, um, a non-trained um, um, person for example very good yeah and i'd imagine there's a lot of experience that goes in with that so if you are like cristiano ronaldo and you've recovered you know you've done a pre-season and, a, and a, the end of the season you've done that for you know i think he's 36 so like he's done that for almost like 19 20 years he's going to have a lot of almost like unevidence based practice um experience to help him recover better as well as you know his body is uh more adapted as well so uh, you can kind of learn how to recover better. Do you think with, with experience, like what works for you as an individual over time? Definitely. I mean, um, recovery, um, recovery management is highly individual. So if we if we look into recovery management for elite athletes, for example, we always have to look on the individual athlete, uh, what works best for him or her. Um, so um, also from a research or scientific perspective, um, in all these recovery studies we did, uh, we see a high inter individual variability in the response to recovery strategies. So this is just one key aspect showing that um, recovery management should be treated highly individual. And yeah, I'm um, pretty much sure, of course, that um, you have to find your own like recovery routines, for example, which can be based on evidence, but which also have to be based on because of the complexity based on experience and I, I'm, I mean, like Cristiano Ronaldo as a perfect example of a highly professional athlete. He probably 
is planning every minute of his day to um, um, reach the highest possible performance level um, he as a human being can can reach and it is definitely i mean it's just a guess but i think it's definitely also influenced by evidence but especially also by experience because he have he has now 19 or 20 years of of experience on the competing on the highest level yeah a lot of uh, time to practice the recovery strategies so yeah. then speaking of uh, the individual uh, you had uh, monitoring, which was another area of your research. So could you talk about heart rate variability? I've heard a lot about it, but I think I feel like it was overhyped when it first came out initially, but you did research on it. So could you explain what it is and then um, how useful it is for uh, performance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, monitoring is, um, um, as we call it, like monitoring, or we would call it like uh, training and athlete monitoring is part, also part of recovery management. Um, so there are mainly four areas when it comes to monitoring. We usually measure um, uh, somehow um, the uh, training load, the, usually the external training load. Um, for example, um, we, we just document, we do a documentation or monitoring of, for example, how much minutes, how, how many minutes do you train, for example, or how many kilometers do you run, um, just to give you some examples of possible parameters. Then the second part of monitoring is the internal training load. So how does the athlete feel during training? The third part is the actual response. How does the um, athlete respond to the training? For example, in the hours and days after the training session. And then the fourth uh, part of monitoring would be to monitor the performance, the performance level. And um, heart rate and heart rate variability is yeah, a famous um, and widely used parameter uh, or monitoring parameter, which is mainly part of monitoring the training response. Of course, we can also measure heart rate and heart rate variability during training, during exercise. Um, but um, heart rate variability in, in the scenario of, of training and athlete monitoring is uh, most often used um, as a parameter or marker to, to monitor training response. And yeah, as you said, it became really popular um, in the last um, year or years or last decades. There are so many publications on that. And um, um, of course, it's a really complicated topic. Um, but um, to, to make it easy, um, if we measure the response to training, we mainly want to measure the fatigue state of the athlete. And fatigue is a really complex um, complex phenomenon. Is, it, is that the right word? Yeah. Um, and uh, we have different kind of physiological levels where fatigue can happen. So, for example, on a muscular level um, or more on a central nervous level, um, we can also have a purely psychological fatigue or a purely energetic fatigue when our carbohydrate levels are empty, for example. So we have different kind of fatigue levels and heart rate variability is only able to measure one or some of these levels. So it's never the whole picture of fatigue but it can definitely be part of the whole picture. So it can help us to get a good picture of the uh, response and the fatigue state of an athlete, why it's still um, accepted and still used in practice. Um, and I'm still um, convinced that it is a possible um, parameter because it's non-invasive. Pretty much, it, it's quite easy, quite, uh, quite um, um, it's not that expensive not that expensive to measure, which is also important in sport practice. So I would still support it, but there are also a lot of limitations and we maybe can talk about that also. So yeah, my, my comment would be, it's part definitely of a monitoring system, 
Um, so you can use it definitely, but uh, you should be clear what you measure there. And um, um, yeah, um, you you have to get into more detail into these aspects of, of heart rate monitoring and heart rate variability money to actually understand what is happening there and to understand what do I actually measure um, when I um, measure heart rate or heart rate variability. Yeah, so what are the limitations of it and then when... Is it best used or what's the best situations that uh, you would recommend an athlete use a device to measure their heart rate variability? So heart rate and um, heart rate variability is mainly derived by the central nervous system. So, um, for example, if there's some sort of uh, central fatigue, we call it central fatigue, and um, then maybe um, the heart rate or heart rate variability response um, will change over time. So just an example, if, for example, um, heart rate variability is um, increasing during an uh, overload period, an overload training period. This can be a signal of, of training overload of some sort of state of fatigue, which is uh, more or less driven by, by central factors, um, um, so mainly by the um, autonomous nervous system. Um, so um, it, is, it is one, as I said, one level of fatigue and uh, def um, or definitely uh, disciplines or sports or loads like, for example, long endurance runs, um, training sessions with a high volume, periods where I have um, a high training volume or some sort of overload training. Um, they, these kind of uh, uh, training loads tend to influence um, heart rate uh, variability response. Um, so in these scenarios, it can help me to, to monitor fatigue and recovery. The limitations are that you usually need a high standardization in the test environment. So for example, if you measure heart rate variability in a so-called so autostatic test where you measure heart rate variability, for example, in the morning after you wake up, first two minutes, for example, in a supine, pos supine position and then two minutes in a standing position, these, uh, the, the environment should be highly standardized. So if suddenly, for example, your girlfriend or your boyfriend is coming into the room and starting talking to you, the whole uh, uh, data or the whole recording um, is, uh, is not use useful anymore. It can't be used anymore. So, so you need a high standardization of the test environment, which is a, is a big limitation. And especially when it comes to heart rate variability, you need some data analysis skills. And um, of course, so you need to, uh, you need to learn a bit, a little bit um, um, about that. It's, it's not so intuitive, for example, than just measuring resting heart rate in the morning. So I think from my perspective, um, for a lot of, especially also recreational athletes who want to measure something with heart rate or monitor something with heart rate uh, like easy parameters like resting heart rate um, would be the better option compared to heart rate variability also which is a really nice thing thing is to do a submaximal endurance test and measure <clears throat> matter exercise heart rate during some these sort of submaximal endurance tests which can be done during a warm-up um, in a training session um, so there are really nice publications on that topic um, and this is also a really good and easy thing to not only um, only monitor short-term fatigue, but also long-term adaptation. Yeah, very good. So it'll give you an indication of where you're at. That would be a standardized test, the submax testing. For example, running a certain distance or lifting a certain weight. It would just be a case of measuring the athlete's heart rate at that particular weight or in uh, duration. Is that right? So, like, I would say, I would say, um, like, heart rate and heart rate variability monitoring is maybe related to the cardiorespiratory system and is, of course, driven by the central nervous system. Um, so it's especially sensitive to fatigue 
when we have high training load and high, uh, not high training load, sorry, high training volumes. Um, and the main disciplines are, of course, endurance discipline, team and record sports, where we have like quite long uh, um, uh, competition times. Um, so it's it's more helpful in these scenarios um, than, for example, in in uh, in strength training scenarios. So we have other parameters which are more helpful in a strength training scenario. Although we also see after an overload strength training cycle, for example, that heart rate variability changes over time. Uh, but the um, um, main scenario is um, high volume training um, or a period where focus on endurance and so on. And yeah, the submaximal endurance tests, they are a really good possibility to uh, to monitor fatigue and also to moni- monitor uh, fitness uh, over a longer period of time. So you mainly, as you said, doing a standardized um, exercise, for example, during a warm-up, you run for 10 minutes at, at a low velocity. Uh, the velocity is standardized and you just measure your heart rate um, and your um, perceived exertion during the training session, uh, during the, during the um, exercise or the, the submaximal um, 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 endurance test. And then over time, you can uh, um, quite well monitor um, um, fatigue. I will just give an example. So if you are in a, in a training period and you do the submaximal endurance test once per week or two times per week and from uh, um, first to second uh, training session heart rate during this submaximal endurance test is uh, decreasing while um, perceived exertion is increasing this is a clear clear signal of some sort of state of fatigue like first impression would be okay heart rate is decreasing during the uh, the same same external load we would say, okay, there's some sort of fitness increase. But on the same time, when we also measure um, perceived exertion and perceived exertion is increasing while heart rate is decreasing, this is a clear sign that there is some sort of acute state of fatigue. And then if you do it like for weeks or even months and you're doing um, it every week, um, one or two times, then you maybe um, can observe a long-term decrease in heart rate while um, perceived exertion is staying at more or less the same level, this would be then a uh, sign of um, adaptation to exercise, a long-term adaptation. So we can use it for monitoring purposes, also for diagnostic purposes. And it's like really practical and just a nice example of how to use heart rate measures in an applied setting for monitoring fatigue and also monitoring um, fitness and performance over um, a more chronic period. Yeah, that's great. So then for some, most people who listen to this, I imagine they do strength training. So like let's just say they squat twice a week or whatever movement they have, they pick, you know, X weight, X number of reps uh, as their warm up. And a lot of people have a Fitbit now or those types of devices, mobile devices. So they could just check their heart rate rate at this standardized movement and weight, and they would be able to see over time what their level of fatigue is. Is that how it would work? Not really. I mean, it's, um, it's, um, it is mainly published and validated in um, more endurance based, um, scenarios why it's called submaximal endurance test um so i'm not sure if it would work if i do a like a specific strength training exercise because it's it's really hard to standardize um the the situation so in a strength training um the scenario i would recommend to do for example if you also want to uh, measure uh, central nervous fatigue um you could measure um, resting heart rate every morning um, or also heart rate variability. And in this scenario, we made the um, experience that heart rate variability 
is um, is maybe sensitive to fatigue after strength training when you measure it in a supine position in in the morning, for example. This um, this um, can be sensitive to central nervous fatigue after after strength training. But overall, I would, from a practical purely practical perspective, and if I know I don't have so many so many resources to to measure a lot, then I would recommend to measure other parameters in a strength training scenario than heart rate or heart rate variability. Good. So it's actually simpler than what I gave as an example. So let's work. So for strength training, you looked at, uh, in another study, you looked at uh, sleep over a, a six-day microcycle. So you just tell us about the results, about how strength training and, and the HIIT training affected sleep. So um, actually the strength training, um, I mean, first of all, we would assume that when we train really hard, uh, like when we have a um, really um, steam increase in overall training load in a short period of time, what we usually experience, for example, during a training camp. Uh, and this is what we actually what we actually did there. We did a, a training lay, uh, camp where the athletes suddenly trained um, several times per day, um, really hard for a couple of days. And um, like from a more theory, we would assume that um, sleep quality um, and maybe also quantity uh, would uh, decrease in deep sort of uh, um, um, overload microcycle uh, because um, all the stress which is um, put on the body, um, um, if you, for example, experience a high amount of muscle soreness, will maybe will maybe influence your sleep quality in a bad way. What we found was that during the strength uh, microcycle, sleep was not really influenced, so it was more or less more or less the same as before the training cycle, while the high-intensity interval training, which came along with a high metabolic demand, of course, um, um, led to a um, decrease in sleep quality. Not quantity, but at least quality. So I would say of, like the overall message, message would be, of course, if you train hard um, or if you increase your acute uh, training workload, um, it can or it may influence your sleep quality and also quantity. But because sleep... From another perspective, namely from the perspective um, um, of recovery strategies, is a really important topic. And um, maybe if I train hard, I also want to recover hard or fast. Then I would focus on um, on sleep quality even more, um, or and also sleep quantity. So, and then we come to the to the uh, aspect of, of of sleep management. And of course, sleep is an important aspect also when it comes to recovery and. Uh, I would say if you would ask me what are the most important recovery strategies we have, then it's the most important are sleep and nutrition because we need sleep and nutrition um, irrespective of what we do. And uh, we can still um, increase the quality of nutrition and also the quality of sleep. And especially when we train really hard and want to recover really fast, then we should focus on sleep management. And sleep management refers to how to increase sleep quality and also how to how to meet um, the amount of sleep that I use as an individual. Yeah, sleep is, is definitely number one. It's good to hear that. So the resistance training didn't affect sleep and the cardiovascular work affected sleep. Is that, would that have anything to do with the total amount of energy uh, output? You could expend more energy, you know, running for 60 minutes than you could doing a resistance training session for 60 minutes. Would that be one of the factors or was there something else at work? Yeah, that's, uh, that, that is, that is one possibility. So we, we don't have a straightforward answer to that. And um, we shouldn't generalize our findings because just one study and just one, one, um, one and a half week 
observation during a heavy overload microcycle. So um, I I would not generalize this finding um, and would say that uh, in general strength training would would not lead to to sleep disturbances maybe also strength training can can lead to that um but like in an um like an elite scenario of course sleep is always an issue because elite athletes travel a lot for example so also we have to take this into account and um, but to answer your your question as you said it's maybe because of the energetic demands which are higher during these high intensity overload cycle uh, the metabolic demands are higher um so maybe we have um, fatigue on more levels Because we did high intensity interval training, also there was a lot of muscle damage. But of course, they also had to uh, um, had to try to, to meet their um, energy levels, or had to to um, um, keep their energy levels up. So all these things are possible explanations. And um, from my perspective, I would say after the high intensity interval um, microcycle, um, different or there were more more peak levels. Um, into play compared to the strength microcycle. Yeah, I've heard about kind of banking sleep as well. So, for example, if somebody knew that they were going to be going through a particularly challenging period of running, they might be able to get more sleep in the week before that or maybe sleep more after that because based on this, even though it is only one study, they might uh, have less quality in the sleep, as you have said. So, yeah, uh, again, you can uh, plan and, and recover more effectively with more planning and Uh, sleep is is the most important so you can get more sleep um, and mitigate the effects of higher intensity running yeah yeah, yeah. so another area you, you work on is, is just recovery strategies so the study looked at uh, half marathon runners and fatigue markers so uh, what were the different recovery strategies that you looked at um, and can you tell me the most effective strategy so that when i do my run i'll recover quickly so we um investigated i would say most of the common commonly used recovery strategies um so apart from nutri nutrition and sleep these are um psychological strategies um uh, for example like uh, breathing techniques um, um and so on then uh, we investigated um different kind of cooling techniques um for example cold water immersion um cooling chambers um but also the topping of pre and pair cooling um which we we again see it here now we have these different kind of reco recovery scenarios so for example we have disciplines where we also have to recover during the the sports so just an example um Australian open and tennis are just over and it is always really hot there and the athletes try to recover also during their matches um um with using um um, per pair cooling strategies like ice filled uh, toes for example um so we had these cooling techniques uh, which we investigated then also um more warming applications like sauna bathing massage um then um strategies like active recovery stretching um and um of course when we talk about massage we also have to talk about foam rolling which is some sort of self massage so we investigated all of these commonly used recovery strategies And um, like as an overall result, I would say like the most most effective are still yeah as I said nutrition and sleep. So these are the also the um, the strategies that are maybe where we have the best evidence for their their usefulness and their helpfulness. Maybe because it's also basic needs we have because without nutrition without sleep we we won't really be able to compete um, um, on a high level over a long period of time. So. I would say this is the the um, um, these are the most important um, recovery techniques. And then at at the group level, our results indicate that um, I would say the like all of the other 
popular recovery strategies um, do not or hardly contribute to a faster recovery um, of the different kind of fatigue markers. So on a group level, they were not really effective. Um, maybe the most effective on a group level was called water immersion when it comes to muscle damage and inflammatory response um, after damaging exercises. And all of the other um, 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 recovery strategies were not really effective or useful on up objective levels. So some of them were quite helpful, at least on a subjective level. So for example, massage um, always helped the athlete to feel better, which is also an important aspect. And as I said, it, it is the finding on the group level. But we also said before that we have to look on each athlete, on each individual athlete. And if we look into the individual results, we always found a high inter-individual variable um, means that we had athletes who responded quite well, for example, after receiving massage or after receiving cold water immersion, while other athletes didn't respond at all. And we all had also some negative responders, which can have something to do with the opposite of a placebo effect, a nocebo effect. So we had some athletes who didn't really like to go into the cold water immersion, which, are, which is understandable because it's not a really nice thing. Um, um, on the other hand, a massage is always well accepted. Um, uh, and of course, it's, it, it feels like it's quite nice and uh, um, it always gives you a good, good, good feeling and a good um, mood state. So um, we also think that the placebo effect is quite effective in, in this scenario. But that will be the overall message, like nutrition and sleep is the most important uh, with, with good evidence that it can also help to recover faster or recover better. All other um, techniques are um, have trivial to small effects on group level can be helpful on an individual level um, and um, usually are not um, harmful which is also an important finding so you can the, the message would be you can still stick to your recovery routine and if you feel that cold water immersion for example can help you or massage can help you or active recovery can help you you can still do it because it won't probably be harmful. But on the other hand, there will be also no no um, recovery magic after using cold water immersion, for example. That is maybe the main message. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because if somebody doesn't do anything for recovery or they don't have any routine, that can be kind of like unsettling. So if someone had like a routine that even was a placebo effect, you know, routine can be very important for an athlete for performance. Um, so if they kind of believe that what they're doing is helping and they use it all the time and the effects are minimal, then it, it can be effective. I, I'm thinking, is it important for a person to know what is actually going on is the placebo effect as opposed to like an objective performance benefit? Do you think um, they should know the difference between it actually improving their performance or their, their belief is what's actually causing the, the benefit. So if I'm a coach um, and I know, for example, my athletes likes to go into the cold water immersion and likes to go zip, uh, use it because the athlete is saying, I'm feeling really good after, after that, I'm feeling refreshed and relaxed, then I can support him or her in, in this, this feeling and this belief and then even strengthen the placebo effect, which maybe at the end of the day, maybe even has an influence on the physiological level uh, because placebo effect, as we know, can be uh, um, pretty pretty strong. Um, so we can strengthen the athlete in um, um, his, his or her routine, beliefs, uh, for example, um, and preferences, um, definitely. Of course, we have to take a, a care or we have to take into account that, for example, if we are in a competition period and we know the athletes are using cold water immersion and the athletes are saying, 
we are feeling better afterward, but maybe the effect on the physiological level is not so high. We still have to take into account, okay, my athlete is feeling better, okay, but uh, I still need the same amount of uh, recovery time. Like, for example, let's say a whole day um, after the next heavy training session. Um, um, as or So we need this uh, same amount of recovery time um, compared to a situation where the where the athlete is not using cold water immersion. Um, so it maybe it doesn't, may, may does not change the recovery time on the physiological level. But if at least the athlete is feeling better, it's, it's an important thing, especially in a competition period where, where the psychological aspect is quite important. If the athlete is feeling good and says, yeah, I'm feeling all right and now can start with a good feeling in the next competition is, is, is already, already half of the price. So that is, that is an important aspect, definitely. Yeah, I can think of a situation where a person, an athlete, either or, is psychologically struggling with recovery. You know, I'm sore or I'm not feeling confident. And then they have this placebo approach, you know, like uh, cold water immersion, and they believe it's going to help them and it helps them cope psychologically more than anything. Then that's like a huge win, I would say. But definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. On the other hand, uh, because we don't see that that much effects for most of the recovery strategies, we also shouldn't force athletes to do some of them, um, some of these um, strategies. For example, if some some athletes doesn't doesn't really like to go uh, or to use cold water immersion, then we shouldn't force him or her to do it. That's the other way around. Um, I would say that would be also my recommendation. Um, of course, um, they should. Um, um, focus on on a good and balanced nutrition and sleep is also important so even though one of the athletes is saying yeah but i like to be on my smartphone um, the whole night and i'm feeling better afterwards um it's probably not the right way to recover um in, in a good way so of course in some ways we have to try to convince um athletes also to do maybe a better routine but in other cases if if i force someone to use cold water immersion for example it's maybe also not not uh, not a good argument there to to force someone to do it because the effects are too small. Yeah, yeah, it's like the I think it's the Hippocratic oath is like first do no harm. So if you're forcing something onto somebody, you might actually be doing more harm than good. And then also, I'm just thinking we say there's no cost or there's minimal cost, but like there's first of all there's a time investment into these. Uh, we'll call them like less evidence based strategies, and then also there's a financial investment as well to create them. So do you think? Those two reasons enough are important to consider and to try and sometimes not support the athlete to use these strategies. Definitely. I mean, it's always um, a question of, of resources. So um, I have to organize all these uh, strategies. So if I do cold water immersion, I need uh, an ice. If I'm doing massage, I, I need a therapist or someone who is doing the massage. So if I have a whole squad, for example, a team, it's becoming even more difficult. Um, so, of course... Um, I've always make a good good plan and think about is it is it practical is, is it useful and um, compare um, um, com, com, compare the uh, the usefulness of the of the technique um, and also the effects of the technique with the the resources I have and um, um, yeah definitely as you said um, it's it's in a lot of scenarios really difficult um, really difficult to make a good decision there um, but as I said I mean most of the recovery strategies are not that effective on a group level. Um, so um, they are also not harmful, which is why on an individual level, I have a high flexibility so I can do a lot of things um, um, to work through and find a good routine for my specific athlete, for example. And um, yeah, a lot of different kind of ways that maybe work best for a specific athlete. Yeah, so a question that comes to mind is, as you know, a lot of information, you're a coach, you're experienced and you're active as well. 
Is there any of these strategies that you use yourself based on everything you know, even though the research is not very strong to say you should use them? I mean, um, so usually um, also um, myself, but also if I... Um, if I um, work with other athletes, for example, um, we are always following some sort of guidelines, guidelines on how to choose recovery strategy. So I use these guidelines for myself, but also for the athlete. And um, these uh, uh, guidelines um, are related to three key aspects. The first aspect is timing. So I have to think about when do I want to use what kind of recovery strategies? Do I want to use something during exercise, after exercise? or before the next exercise, because we have different kind of time points to use recovery strategies, as I already said before, because we also have different kind of uh, different fatigue levels from a time, time, time point. So for example, if I am in a, in, in a training session, in a like uh, running based interval training session, and for example, I'm doing four minute intervals, high intensive intervals, then I have to think about should I do, for example, active recovery during the intervals? Or should I just recover passively during intervals? Um, and if I then do this high-intensity interval training in the heat, then I have also to think about should I use any cooling strategies during my training session to increase, for example, training intensity or training quality? Or should I, shouldn't I use it? Um, so, so the timing is really important. And the timing influences the choice of recovery strategies. Another example, if, uh, if it is hot um, and I want to use like pre-cooling strategies, so try to cool my body before I start uh, with the training. And the training is like a speed training, for example, or power training. And I use cold water immersion immediately before the training session. It will diminish my performance. Um, so I have to take into account the time point. Um, um, and um, based on the time point, I should uh, define what kind of uh, recovery strategies I use. So for example, with cold water immersion, we, we see that it's most helpful if I use it directly after the training session, if I um, have the risk of experienced muscle soreness. So if I use it directly after training session, there's a chance to decrease the inflammatory response after muscle damage. While maybe on the next day after a fatiguing exercise, it's maybe more helpful to have like more these warming or blood flow increasing um, recovery strategies like active recovery or massage, which also helps me to reactivate before the next training session. So these all, all aspects are um, part of the, the, the um, choosing aspect of timing. Um, and then we have the second aspect, which, which is the sports and discipline specificity. So we always have to think about the possible mechanisms of a recovery strategies and how these mechanisms meet the fatigue me mechanisms of a specific sport or discipline. So just an example, if I do a heavy strength training and there's a high risk of muscle soreness, cold water immersion will probably help a lot. But if you have like a long swim where you have high energy demands, but no muscle soreness at all, and you are already in the water during the whole session, probably cold water immersion after the session is not really a good thing or logically to use. So it's maybe more important to concentrate on nutrition, to um, get um, a lot of carbohydrates, um, and to to restore your glycogen store. So just two examples of uh, how like exercise specificity should influence your choice of recovery strategies. Last example for this, again, if you we have the Australian Open, for example, or the Ironman, or a lot of other um, sports and disciplines where um, um, where the load is or, or where the competition is held in in hot environment, then it's probably not really helpful to go into the sauna after after the exercise because you already have a lot of heat stress during competition. And then again, heat stress in the sauna is maybe not a good idea. And uh, then we have the third aspect, which is individualization. So meet the preferences and beliefs of the athletes and also 
look on the in-real effects. So if it's some sort of possible to, to measure or document how the athlete is responding to a specific recovery strategy. So for example, if an athlete is usually in cold water immersion during a training period, uh, a lot of time and always feeling really good and feels that it is helping him or her, then it's maybe also a good thing to use it during the competition period. But on the other way around, if uh, someone is using foam rolling and is not liking it and always feels bad afterwards, then you shouldn't force him to do it and to use it. So these are the three main aspects and they are like framed by the aspect of evidence informed. So of course you should choose your recovery strategies based on these, sorry, um, based on these um, um, aspects and it should be framed by, by evidence. So that would be, would be, the uh, long answer of your of your question and that is what i use also so for most of my sports i usually concentrate on nutrition and sleep because i know this is most helpful so i try, try to stick to a good sleep routine um, to get my sleep quality and quantity and uh, i have my nutrition rules and then from time to time um, just because i know i, I it, it feels good. Maybe um, I get a massage or something, but um, because I'm not an elite athlete and I know I don't have to concentrate that much on, on recovery, I feel that nutrition and sleep helps me enough to recover from the demands I have in my job and also um, in my personal um, um, sport experience, I would say. Yeah, I like that. The guidelines are evidence-based. So then you take out a lot of, or as much guesswork as you can by following following the evidence really effective. So then the last question, but uh, the main reason that we are having this podcast is the meta-analysis on the effects of foam rolling. So could you just explain what a meta-analysis is, Timo, and then talk about uh, the recovery strategy of foam rolling and what the study found? Mm -hmm. Yeah, meta-analysis is some sort of systematic review um, where you not only look into the studies, but also do a second analysis of the different effects of different studies. Um, so you try to find an overall effect of a recovery strategies in this case, um, um, based on all studies that have been done on, on the topic of foam rolling. And of course, you don't include all of the studies because there are studies with, uh, for example, methodological issues, for example. So you have you have to exclude some studies, but um, yeah, in a meta-analysis, you have always a, um, um, some sort of collection of um, original research studies um, and you um, analyze um, like some sort of mean effect size for an intervention or a treatment based on all effects of all original studies. Yeah, as you said, we did this kind of meta-analysis um, with regard to form rolling. I would say a really popular recovery strategy, which um, has been uh, becoming more and more popular in the last, uh, I would say, like five to 10 years. I think one main reason why it is really popular is because it's really cost-effective um, and everyone can use it um, part of uh, their training plan. Um, and um, we have to distinguish, so it's usually used during warm-up, we, we call it pre-rolling, and also during the recovery period after training, and we call it post-rolling. Um, so we have to distinguish between the, these two scenarios, I would say. And um, foam rolling as pre-rolling is mainly used with the aim to increase performance during the following task. Um, and we see that can maybe have a small effect on um sprint performance on the other hand no study showed any effects on strength or um, or jump performance which is why we would say it's not a really clear effect so it's it's small small means that it's maybe helpful for elite athletes but definitely not for recreational athletes but um, it has an 
um, acute effect on flexibility. And the reason for that, um, I will explain in, in a minute, because we can also now look on the effects of post-rolling on recovery. And the main aim of recovery, of course, is uh, to, to recover um, or to reach the initial performance level in the shortest possible of uh, time. So usually um, we have an initial performance level, then we train hard, we are in a state of fatigue, or so the performance level is decreased. And with the use of recovery strategies, we try to, to um, reach at least our initial performance level or even super compensate our initial uh, performance level in a shorter period of time compared to not using any recovery strategies at all. And in this scenario, uh, form rolling is not, not helpful to um, decrease the recovery time, read the initial um, um, performance level, but it can help to at least acutely decrease muscle soreness. So it has some sort of, uh, um, some, some sort of analgesic effect. Also the reason probably why it acutely helps to increase flexibility because the the like the mechanistic mechanistic explanation for that is that foam rolling um, influences the pain sensitivity of our pain receptor it's it's a quite quite easy quite easy and common uh, um, common um, observation that uh, is pain inhibits pain so foam rolling can be a little bit painful and uh, because of this it uh, it influences the pain sensitivity and therefore in the in the minutes or also in the hour afterwards, uh, the pain that we experience decreases. So muscle soreness decreases and also flexibility uh, um, increases because we, because when we when we stretch, it also can be painful. When we have like an increase in pain tolerance, we have also an increase in stretch tolerance. So overall, I would say foam rolling on a group level is not really effective when it comes to recovery purposes. Only on a subjective or muscle soreness level, it can help or a couple of minutes or for an hour to, to feel better. So based on that, our recommendation is to use foam rolling during the warm-up. So for example, if you still have muscle soreness, but you know I have to train now, maybe help to uh, your well-being, which then will help you to perform better during the training session. But it, it's not so useful to use it after a training session during uh, during the recovery period, even though maybe, I mean, you can still use it because there are maybe no harmful effect, at least if you don't use it in a too painful way. So you can still use it after training if you feel muscle soreness and want to work on that a little bit. But the main uh, main area would be during the during the preparation for for competition or training. And this is also interesting. Maybe this is the last sentence. We did a nice study on on maybe also harmful effects of foam rolling. So we we rode with different kind of intensities, means with different kind of pressure, um, and um, we used a pain scale from zero to no pain at all to ten to the maximum imaginable pain. And they rolled at eight to nine on the pain scale and on three to four on the pain scale. And uh, both times after a heavy training session, after a really intense strength training session, and after the uh, after rolling with the pain level of eight to nine, muscle soreness even decreased more. So we had muscle soreness, of course, after the strength training, but muscle soreness was even worse after rolling really hard. So this is maybe also some, some interesting information. So if you use foam rolling, don't treat yourself too hard, too painful with that. So I was going to say that if it decreases, uh, pain decreases pain, then a UFC fighter, like our, uh, uh, a combat sports athlete, could use foam rolling to reduce the pain cessation because of the, the combat, right? But you've just proven that is not the, the case because it actually increases the soreness. So it seems like foam rolling is like overhyped. Would you, would you say that's uh, it's fair to say? I don't know if it's really overhyped. I mean, I can... I can understand the trend because it's it's cheap and therefore cost effective. And the athletes who you're using it, some sort of 
feeling better afterwards, which is maybe related to uh, the analgesic effect, though, that pain inhibits um, the pain, which is, first of all, a good thing. So if you feel better, you can use it because in most of the scenarios, we probably don't see any harmful effect. Um, so I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's a hype, so it's a, it's a reasonable or understandable trend, but I would say from a more like um, marketing perspective, of course, they are like, it's, it's a huge industry also. So there are a lot of, um, a lot of companies selling um, these uh, foam rolls. Um, of course, I would say the effects are far smaller than expected by most of the people and also um, um, how it is communicated um, to, to a lot of athletes. So uh, that is the main finding. I would say, yeah. Yeah, very good. Is there anything that we <clears throat> didn't cover or anything you want to mention? There's a lot of things we didn't cover. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like, of course, from my perspective, because I did research for more than 10 years on this topic. Um, it, there's a lot of things to talk about. And of course, we can talk about all these different kinds of recovery strategies in detail. So I think the most important thing is if you, if you want to use recovery strategies, always keep in mind these three aspects, timing, board specificity, and individualization to find like a good um, and reasonable um, way of using recovery strategies. Um, and maybe also if it comes to the overall concept of recovery management, try to keep in mind these um, main two areas. So recovery management is always monitoring of fatigue and recovery on the one side, recovery planning. So planning the use of recovery strategies on the other side. And both of course are related because if I use monitoring, I get information of when is my athlete in a state of fatigue and maybe needs more focus on recovery or recovery strategies. And when is my athlete in a state of um, readiness um, where maybe recovery strategies are not so important, where I can train really hard, for example, and stress my athlete. So both aspects are, of course, highly related. And then, of course, when it comes to more detail, um, we, can, we could talk about specific parameters. So everyone should think about their specific discipline. So if you work with strength athletes, they need different monitoring systems than in endurance athletes when it comes to the parameters that you measure. And the same um, applies for recovery strategies. So maybe um, an endurance athlete needs different kind of recovery strategies than a strength athlete or a team sport athlete. Depends on on the environment and, and, and all these aspects. Yeah, it sounds like know your, your field that you're working in or your sport you're working in and then know your individual self as well. So you can kind of navigate that situation and the time as well to, uh, to maximize recovery and hopefully boost your performance. That's it, pretty much. And I mean, first of all, uh, maybe the, that's the, the main message I would have. Um, concentrate on nutrition and sleep first from a recovery perspective um, because we most of, I mean, with most of the athletes, there are always things that can be improved when it comes to nutrition and sleep. And this will already help a lot. Yeah, there's such big areas. There's nearly always room for improvement in one of those two. Uh, so, Timo, this has been great. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I'll attach, you know, any links that I can to the podcast when it goes up and um, keep up the good work. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you very much for the invitation.